You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So we are back in the book of Revelation. I'm excited to get back into this book with you. And I'll be quite frank, if there ever was a time to be studying the book of Revelation, it is now in this world. World events are extremely unsettling, if I could say it kind of mildly like that for a lot of people. And we've talked a little bit about Afghanistan as a few people were praying. I'm sure you've all been following that. I want to talk about that a little bit before we get into our text this morning in Revelation because obviously these things are related in many ways. I am going to go out on a limb and say that I believe what we actually witnessed this week was a monumental historical shift. And what I mean by that is that this is being billed by geopolitical analysis as the end of the American world order. And when I say American world order, I'm not referring to the new world order or some sort of conspiratorial term. It's a geopolitical term that is used to indicate the dominance of America as the leading superpower in the world. And many people are now saying that with the fall of Afghanistan so devastatingly, this is the final nail in the coffin of that. And I believe this will have serious repercussions for the rest of the world. Now, for those of us who have grown up really any time since a post-World War II world, um, the American world order is kind of all we've known. Everything from the fall of the Berlin Wall to the, you know, the fall of communism and the, the opening of the gulags, the whole concept of the strong protecting the weak, standing up for the little guy against totalitarian regimes, that desire for freedom, you have to admit America has really had that desire for freedom like no other nation before it. The free press, freedom of religion, freedom of worship, free trade. All of these things have been packaged into what they call the American dream and that has made, really shaped our world over the last 80 years um, among with other factors but that is the world that we know in many ways and a lot of people are now saying that we have just witnessed its demise. There are many many articles coming out this week and of course when you read the news, the news is written to excite people and get people to click and all these sorts of things. I understand all of that, but I want us to peer behind it a little bit now. I know America is still very wealthy, still very powerful. Of course, China is also very wealthy and very powerful now. But what I'm not saying America is going to disappear. What I want to talk about a little bit is the fact that world perception has now changed. Like it or not, whatever your personal views on America, I know you could depending on which newspaper you read, you'll probably have a different view this day and age. But like it or not, many very bad people have been kept at bay in this world only by the presence of someone stronger than themselves. And that someone since the end of World War II has been America. That is why they have been the leader in global geopolitics. And if that is changing, then the world is in for a big change. Now, with this, it seems now that with the fall of Afghanistan and the way that America is now seen to be willing to abandon its own people or to abandon its allies within the Middle East, and again, there are many articles coming out on this, uh, they're not able to get their people to airfields, their people are having to buy their own tickets, and as we, we've seen, some of just the horrible human rights implications that this whole situation has for our world, this is the situation that we're in. The, the message to the world is clear as many people are seeing it. And this is, unfortunately, I believe, going to have some really bad consequences. China is already flexing its muscles with regard to this. This was a tweet from China, it was Global Times, basically, which is 
Chinese state media, so it's part of the, the Communist Party of China. They said this, after the fall of the Kabul region regime, the Taiwan authorities must be trembling. Don't look forward to the US to protect them. Taipei officials need to quietly mail order a five-star red flag from the Chinese mainland. It will be useful one day when they surrender to the PLA. This is the Chinese state media, because obviously Taiwan maintains its independence because they have the backing of America. You see, that's how a lot of geopolitics works. But now that America is seen to be on notice, or its allies are on notice, we are seeing these sorts of things happen. We are being told also that North Korea is very interested in watching what's going on, because again, if you know, North Korea, South Korea, South Korea supported and was modeled after America, basically. Iran is also openly defying US sanctions right now. In fact, they're taunting America. They're in the process of sending a ship, a cargo ship, a fuel ship down to Lebanon in direct uh, defiance of US sanctions, and they are taunting America to do something about it. And this is, we're also seeing this in Ukraine. Ukraine, again, is another place that Russia has always wanted to have its hands on again. America has really prevented that from happening. Putin right now is making a lot of noise. And this is happening all over the world. Big geopolitical changes are happening because of what we've seen in this last week. America's allies are on notice. And of course, the biggest ally, as the East rises or changes, who is America's biggest ally in the Middle East? And that would be Israel. And as we see, as we're going to get into the book of Revelation, these new relationships, I'm not saying this is what's going to be happening in the book of Revelation, but it may be preparation. We need to watch these things carefully. You will see these things shift. You will see new alliances form. You will see new rulers rise. You will see dictators fighting dictators. Some will win, some will not win. And you will see people coming to power. And these things will happen. We're going to study that in depth when we get to it. New relationships will form. You see, the world is full of regimes that vie for power not freedom. That is the, the nature of fallen man. We've seen that ever since Cain and Abel right back and that first murder and it's been a story throughout the entire Bible and throughout human history. Now why this is such an unusual moment in history I believe is that those nations that actually have had historically the freedom that is unheard of in most of world history they are at a stage in their history where they actually seem to despise those freedoms. Most of their time is spent trying to prove that they are in fact the worst of the worst whilst turning a blind eye to much of what goes on in the world. When democratic and free nations no longer appreciate what they have or what has been given to them, there will be someone there willing to take it. This is, just, this is not prophecy, this is just history. You could study history and see that happen again and again and again. We saw it just a little bit, didn't we, with Hong Kong recently. Do you remember Hong Kong had all the freedoms and they had an agree agreement with the British government that China was not going to get involved again? The West is considered to be fairly weak in many ways right now. China decided they wanted Hong Kong. They took Hong Kong and that had horrible human rights implications for the church. As much as they pleaded to the West to intervene and to help, nothing happened. China took Hong Kong again in that respect. Now, whilst all this is happening, these monumental world shifts that I would say maybe are some of the biggest since the Second World War in many ways, it does seem like the West is living in a world of its own. While also all of this is happening, we are arguing about what a male and female is. We're still debating whether it's wrong to kill children. We're ruining corporations and businesses 
for misidentifying people's pronouns. We spend most of our time trying to prove that our own institutions that have given us so much freedom are in fact the cause of all evil in the world. We are eternally distracted by our own entertainments and because of this we've created a culture that is self-absorbed and inward focused and continually fighting amongst ourselves. We have been fed a constant stream of negativity through the things that we absorb, anything really to keep us from seeing the writing on the wall. And I believe this is the devil's purpose, to distract us from seeing what is happening. And as I've been looking at this and trying to get my head around it this week, I, I couldn't help but think of two very famous dystopian novels. You may have heard of these, George Orwell's 1984 and Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. So George Orwell's 1984, that was written in 1949. They call it social science fiction. It pictures a world taken over by a totalitarian regime where the state is run with big brother surveillance, where there is a thought police and everything is controlled by something called the Ministry of Truth. Now, that might sound, and obviously if you've been following politics, you'll see 1984 is referenced quite frequently right now in modern political discourse. However, there's another book, this is the other one, Brave New World, which is not the same. It's a dystopian novel, but it does picture a different world. It's a, it's a future that is achieved by psychological manipulation and classical conditioning not by overt force and big brother. So two very opposite ways of getting to a dystopian future. Now, there are some quite shocking parallels in these, these two books. Many people call them modern day prophecies, if I could say that. Now, one of the most insightful analyses of these two works, as it applies to America and the Western world, comes from a man called Neil Postman. He wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death in the mid-90s. I'm going to read to you a long quote of his where he talks about these two books. And I want you to just listen and apply it and see what he's saying about our world today because I think he, he makes some very good points. He says, We were keeping our eye, speaking of the West, on 1984. When the year came and the prophecy didn't, thoughtful Americans sang softly in praise of themselves. The roots of liberal democracy had held... Wherever else the terror had happened, we at least had not been visited by this Orwellian nightmare. But we had forgotten that alongside Orwell's dark vision, there was another, slightly older, slightly less well-known, equally chilling book, Huxley's Brave New World. Contrary to common belief, even among the educated, Huxley and Orwell did not prophesy the same thing. Orwell warns, of a, warns that we will be overcome by an externally imposed oppression. But in Huxley's vision, no big brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As he saw it, people will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. What Orwell feared was that those who would ban books, what Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book for there would be no one wanting to read them. Orwell feared that those who would deprive us of information, Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared that the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture. In 1984, Orwell added, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, they are controlled by their pleasures. In short, Orwell feared that what we fear will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we desire will ruin us. Americans no longer talk to each other, we entertain each other. We no longer exchange ideas, they exchange images. They do not argue with propositions, they argue with looks, celebrities and commercials. 
What Huxley teaches is that in the age of advanced technology, spiritual devastation is more likely to come from an enemy with a smiling face than from one whose countenance exudes suspicion and hate. In the Huxleyan prophecy, Big Brother does not watch us by his choice, we watch him by ours. There is no need for wardens or gates or ministries of truth. When a population becomes distracted by trivia, when cultural life is redefined as a perpetual round of entertainment, when serious public conversation becomes a form of baby talk, when in short, a people become an audience and their public businesses a show, then a nation finds itself at risk. A culture death is a clear possibility. And I think that is just spot on to describe Western culture. Our political discourse, our entertainments, the way we argue about things, this is a very good description. Now, what will come next in the future? Huxley or Orwell? Mixture of both, it seems, maybe, in some ways we could say right now. But in truth, the thing about these dystopian novels and why they're called dystopian novels is they have no hope in them. There is no other part of the story where good wins and vanquishes evil. There is nothing but oppression in these stories. So... That is why we don't use these as a guide for the future, as interesting as they are. We want to turn to what is the only true and more sure word of prophecy about the future, and that is the book of Revelation in many ways. As we watch the massive upheavals in the world, as we see governments fall, as we see power shifting, as we see freedoms waning, and we see the earth shaking, literally and figuratively, I'm reminded of the words of Jesus, where he says, you'll be hearing of wars, rumours of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. This is not the end. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. If there ever was a time to make sure that you are secure in the arms of Jesus, I would say it would be now. There is a reason We've spent three weeks in Revelation so far. We've been in chapter one. We spent three weeks looking at the vision of the glorified king. And there is a reason I believe Revelation starts with that wonderful picture of the glorious king. It presents this king as so powerful, so righteous, so holy, that every tyrant who defies him will simply fall at the breath that comes out of his mouth. And there is a reason why we need to have a vision of Jesus like that. Different to the Jesus that walked the shores of Galilee, this is the glorified Lord, and this is why Revelation is so important to us. I believe C.S. Lewis captured this vision so well in his Narnia novels. If you know Narnia, the lion Aslan was a character that was modelled on Jesus Christ. Let me read to you a little bit from one of Lewis's novels. It says, and just think of this picture of Revelation 1 of Jesus that we've been studying. There's a bit more to it than the quote there, but it says, Aslan stood up, and when he opened his mouth to roar, they saw all the trees in front of him bend before the blast of his roaring, as grass bends in a meadow before the wind. The speed of him was like the ostrich, and his size was an elephant's. His hair was like pure gold, and the brightness of his eyes like gold that is liquid in the furnace. That's almost a direct quote from Revelation chapter 1. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we will have spring again. And in many ways, what Lewis is getting at there is what we're going to be studying in the book of Revelation. When Christ comes as the lion, conquering lion of the tribe of Judah, he defeats the enemies with the breath of his mouth, and then summer will come, the kingdom will come. That is what the book of Revelation is about. However... In the book of Revelation, before the king deals with the world, 
with those who are standing up to defy him, he has a word for his beloved church. And that is what we're going to look at now in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Do you remember our outline of the book of Revelation? Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. The things which seen is the glorified king. The things which are, this is what we're going to be studying now. This is Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And the things which will take place after, we'll deal with that later. So let's read the letter to the church at Ephesus. We're going to just read the whole letter in one go. It's about eight verses, so I'll read it all to you. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to test put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary but I have this against you that you left your first love therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So this is the church in Ephesus. And these are seven epistles that we have written to the church by Jesus Christ here. They're much neglected epistles because they're in the book of Revelation, which is a much neglected book in the church unfortunately but let's deal with the city of Ephesus here the church at Ephesus received a letter from Jesus directly this was a famous city in the ancient world it was the religious cultural and economic center in that region which is Asia Minor Turkey as we would call it today it was very famous because of this building here this is the famous temple of Diana the temple of Artemis as it's called it operated as a religious cult primarily, but also it was actually the, the main banking institution of Asia Minor at that time. So you can imagine the, the wealth and the business interests that that would bring into this city. The city was rife with a cult, with witchcraft, with prostitution, with fertility rites, with emperor worship, with all the various things that you would find in Greco-Roman culture at that time. Now, if you want to see Diana, this is Diana, or Artemis as she's often called. She is a fertility goddess and she is known as the many-breasted goddess. And I'm sure from that image you can imagine what sort of things happened in her temples. And you can read a lot about it in the ancient literature and it's just as you would expect. Now, the ruins of Ephesus are one of these places that are really quite amazing. They're still very well preserved. I've actually been there myself. You can walk down what's called the Acadian Way here. This is a first century street that leads you to the main city. And you can actually, this is one of those places where you, you can pretty much definitely walk down here and say, the apostles, Priscilla and Aquila, the apostle John, they would have walked down that street. They would have had that view there. There's really no doubt that that would have happened. It was the main way into the city. You get to the bottom of that road and you're met by the lovely library. This is the library of Celsus. This is actually slightly after this is second century that was built, but that's in the main town square there. This is a couple of remains of one of the, the temples there. Some say it was the Temple of Artemis, some say it was, it, it was a different temple. There were probably so many different temples there. However, this was Ephesus. It was a leading city, but it was also a leading church. Paul spent a lot of time in Ephesus. He visited it briefly on his second missionary journey, 
Priscilla and Aquila laid the groundwork for him. And then later on, he spent three years in Ephesus teaching and ministering. Timothy served as the pastor of Ephesus. And we know from the testimony of the early church that the Apostle John, who is writing the book of Revelation now, he was also an elder in the church at Ephesus before he was exiled to Patmos. The church had a dramatic birth. Do you remember in the book of Acts? It was attested by miracles. You get that famous story of the Jewish exorcists trying to do miracles in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches. And then one of the, one of the demons says, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? And they get overpowered and they, they flee from that place naked and the whole place is struck with fear. And then it says in the book of Acts that many people were turning from their witchcraft and their idolatry and they were burning their magic books and their idols. And because of this, there was a man named Demetrius the silversmith. And he most likely had a shop. And if you go back to that, that slide there, at the side of this road, there was stool. You can see, you can see them a bit there, but different shopkeepers would have different stools as they would walk around. And Demetrius was probably one of these people who was selling idols of, of Diana, of Artemis. And he made good money from that. But as this religious revival started breaking out, he noticed that his sales dropped. So he gathered together all the guild of businessmen and he started a riot saying, we must get rid of these people because they're ruining our business. He basically got everyone into a frenzy, a mob rules, and they grabbed Paul and his associates and they dragged him into the amphitheater. This is the theater here. You can visit there today. And this is again, also one of those places where you can sit and you can say without a doubt, that is where Paul and his uh, traveling missionaries would have been dragged into at the bottom there as the town shouted, great is Artemis of Ephesus. Remember that story in Acts 19 and Acts 20, we have that. So it's one of those places. That was the birth of the church. And now we see John writing to this church. He's on Patmos now, and this is about 40 years after the inception of the church. So let's look at the text that we read. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. So in all these letters, you'll notice, there's seven of them we're going to go through in the next two chapters, he draws an identification of who is writing. And he always has a description. And if you'll notice, it's always a description that's drawn from chapter one. This is, again, another reason why we spend three weeks in chapter one looking at that vision of the glorified Christ. Because every time he writes to a church, he seems to want to make it known that he is the glorified Christ, the resurrected, conquering king that we saw in, in chapter one. And I think this is a lesson for us today. Because too often, like I've said in the previous studies, we still think of Christ as walking in his dusty robes, beaten and rejected, and that same image that we have of him as that is often dramatized when we're studying or reading the Gospels. And I think he's reminding the church here now, no, I'm resurrected, I'm glorified, I have the glory now that I had with the Father since before the world was, and this is me. And he's reminding them of that. And that is obviously great comfort to a church that is being persecuted. I'm sure that's great comfort to many around the world right now. But he says, I'm the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And do you remember from last week, the lampstands were identified as being the churches. It's a sim symbol of the church. What this is saying is Christ is in his church and he walks among his church. He is not an outsider to his church. Although we may sometimes treat him like that, Christ is in the church. And first he commends them for what they're doing. So let's look at verse two. He says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to, put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false. 
your deeds, your toil, and your perseverance. Now, we know there is much in the Christian life that is joyful, but we also know that it is accompanied by much labour, much service, and much toil in this world. Everyone knows that. The Ephesian church worked hard for the Lord. They could not tolerate evil men, and they tested those who were false apostles, and the Lord commends them for this. It is a commendable characteristic of this church. They were not afraid to call out evil for what it was. They obviously understood the process of church discipline or of being salt and light. And remember, they lived in Ephesus, a city full of idols, full of false worship, full of gross immorality, and they were concerned with the purity of God's church, and they guarded it. And I would say, oh, that the church would have that attitude more today. In a lot of the church, anything goes. Whatever is culturally acceptable is whatever people want. In a desire not to offend people, often we allow things to go on that should not be going on. I believe the Ephesians would not have allowed that, and the Lord Jesus commends them for it. We have a letter written to the Ephesian church by the church father Ignatius, in the second century so a little bit later we see how this church was faring and he still even that time has passed he commends them for having the same attitude listen to what he says in his letter to the ephesians this is the church father ignatius from the second century he says but i have learned that certain people have passed your way with evil doctrine but you did not allow them to sow it among you you covered up your ears in order to avoid receiving the things being sown by them so they were still, obviously, very good at acknowledging false doctrine. Now, why were they so good at it? I believe it's because of the Apostle Paul. Now, do you remember Acts chapter 20, when Paul is about to leave for Rome, and he calls together the Ephesian church elders, and he gathers them together, and they all meet, and there's that moving scene where they hug and they, they cry on each other. And what did he say to them when he left them? He said this, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. That was what Paul left them with, and they took that very seriously. They were on the alert. Jesus commended them for that. They tested things against the word of God. And this is something that we are all responsible to do. Right back in the book of Isaiah, to the law and to the testimony, chapter 8, verse 20. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. That was the test for Israel. If someone comes to you with a religious message and it is not according to the word of God, dismiss it. That's what he said, and it was simple. 1 John 4, 1. Do not believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. Acts 17, 11. Those in Berea were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, and they examined the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. They examined what was being taught, daily to see whether these things were so and they call this being a Berean that's where that term comes from and it means someone who studies the word to see whether these things are so we do not absorb everything that comes from a religious teacher 
even if they claim to be a Christian, just because they are charismatic, just because they have big TV ministries, the chances are that is a good warning sign, in fact, that they may be saying something that is not right. The Ephesian church tested these things and they were commended for it. He goes on in verse 3, And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. The Ephesians continued to guard the purity of the church without growing weary. And that's saying quite a lot. Ministry is exhausting. Ministry can be hard. Being a Christian in a fallen world can be very hard. We need to draw our strength daily from the Lord Jesus. The term perseverance there, the word literally means abiding under a heavy load. This was a lot to take on for the Ephesians. They were in the city where the great temple of Diana was. The temple of Diana was one of the seventh wonders, seven wonders of the ancient world. It was world-renowned. People traveled, for, in fact, when I, went, I did a Seven Churches of Revelation tour many years ago where we visited these sites. And even when I was there, just you know, a few years back with my bro, there were still a few people worshipping there. You see New Age people out on, on the remains of the Temple of Ephesus. I mean, this was the sort of impact that it had even 2,000 years later. But it was a centre. The church obviously took a lot. They were very countercultural. You could say it like that. They were standing up to these things in the midst of a culture that was telling them that they were wrong. They abided under that heavy load. They undoubtedly were met with hostility. They were undoubtedly excluded from many things. You saw this with the riots, trying to get them excluded from business, trying to get them excluded from the trade guilds. And obviously, they did not crave cultural acceptance. And I'm sure there was actually outright persecution in many ways too. But the church took it and the church did not grow weary. They are the commendations. They are the things that Christ commends them for. However, as with all these letters, there is often something else that Christ has to say. And we have this now in verse 4. He says, I have this against you, that you left your first love. Now, almost comes as if from nowhere after those commendations, this is probably one of the most stinging and painful assessments that could come to a church from Jesus. I'd imagine this cut straight to the heart of this church, a church that externally seemed to be doing so well, seemed to be doing so much for the Lord, but the truth was they had prioritised their service over their relationship. And I think we can all appreciate how easy that is to do. Sometimes it is much easier just to go about busying yourself and doing things than it is to wait, to seek, to walk through the tough moments of relationships, to listen, to test, to think, and do all these different things that requires growth in a relationship. Sometimes it's much easier just to be busy. Now, if we could put this into our vernacular today, they were showing up for the Bible studies. They were going out evangelizing. They were debating the heretics. They were standing against the immorality in the culture. Yet, they had left their first love, which means they were tolerating a cold, sluggish love for Christ. And they made up for that with extra zeal in their service. And I think there are so many lessons that we could take from that in our own lives. Now, do not read this and think, well, how silly that is. That, that's obviously what, how did they let that happen? I think we all can just see the slow steps that it would take before we realise we're in that situation without even realising it. Just the busyness of life tends to draw us to that situation. 
because every day in life there are things and pressures that just come into your life you can't control them and they take your mind away from Christ they busy you you don't have the time you used to have to do these things so I don't believe this is something that I'm trying to condemn you with Jesus is writing this to them as we'll see in the next verse to warn them that this is happening this is exactly what happened to Israel I want to read you a little bit from the book of Jeremiah now when the honeymoon period is over the initial excitement is down and you realize that you are actually building into something long term it can be much harder when those feelings aren't always in the, in the same sort of excitement that they were in the early stages but it's that long-term work that produces a long and fruitful lasting relationship Israel was warned about this Jeremiah chapter 2 listen now the word of the Lord came to me saying go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem saying thus says the Lord he said this I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth the love of your betrothal you following after me in the wilderness through a land not sown Israel was holy to the Lord what he's basically saying is to this nation, this Jeremiah, as they were going into captivity, he's saying, I remember how much you loved me in the early days. You used to just follow me around because you love being with me so much. That's the imagery that he's giving us here. And this is the same concept that he's saying to the Ephesians, remember your first love. But in Jeremiah, he goes on. Verse 5, he says, thus says the Lord, what injustice did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? He asks them now, what was it in me that you found wrong that you actually started to stray from me? That you were being tempted by the idols of the nations around you? That the practices of those that I told you not to engage in were starting to seduce you to follow? What was it? And of course, the answer is there's no answer. There's no injustice that they could find with God. He goes on. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? And those who handle the law did not know me. The rulers transgressed against me and the prophets prophesied by Baal, and they walked after things that did not profit. The religious leaders of Israel were not seeking the Lord in their decisions, and they were leading the nation astray, just like those in our church today who do not seek the Lord can still lead the church astray. This is why the Ephesian was commended for testing things against the word of God. There's only one thing that will never lead people astray, and that is the word of God. And that is why the word of God is always held up like that. Those who handle the law did not know me. It's worse than just being a bit of false teaching. He's actually saying those religious leaders in Israel at that time who led the nation into captivity, they did not know me. They were hereditary. The priesthood was hereditary at that stage. Yes, they probably inherited the position. They, they'd gone through basic training. They knew what to say. They knew what to do. But over and over, we'll see in the nation of Israel, they led the nation into apostasy because they did not know the Lord, and that is foundational. The prophets prophesied by Baal. False prophecies. False prophecies abound. This is still a problem today. This will be a problem in the future. We'll see in the book of Revelation. There will be a character who comes to the fore of the event who is called the false prophet. This is someone who stands against Jesus Christ, and he says they walked after things that did not profit. That means they were seeking the desires, the delights of the world. Remember Neil Postman's analysis. A culture destroys itself when it seeks after what it desires. This is the same concept that's going on here. He goes on in Jeremiah, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. They have forsaken the Lord God, the living God of Israel, and they have replaced it with their own ingenuity, their own pride, their own whatever you want to put in that blank. They replaced God 
with their own works, and this was their decline. You could say this was the same as leaving their first love, but it shows you all the way. Jesus here is trying to stop them going all the way. And this is what happens here. You see, time spent at the master's feet will never be taken away. You remember the story of Mary and Martha. Now, we might think that that might hinder our service in some ways, and I know in a practical mindset, we can think, well, I don't have time to just be sitting and studying and praying or going out and doing this. I need to get stuff done. And then we fall into the trap. You see, the Ephesians were doing many, many good things, but they had it backwards. The acts of service and devotion that we do must flow from our relationship with the Lord, not the other way around, because it doesn't work like that. We all feel that pull from the world to wander and stray from Jesus Christ. Do you remember the hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, here's my heart, take it, seal it, seal it for the courts above. That's the same concept again that's being described here. Many times in our Christian walks, you may be in a dry spell, you may be in what we call a wilderness experience. And in those times, as when Jesus was in the wilderness, the devil will come to you to tempt and to deceive. You may be feeling extremely low. Your private times may be dry. Your prayers may be half-hearted. It's easy to make excuses. Sometimes we call those who are more disciplined than us, we would call them legalistic. Sometimes we, it seems as if we're just throwing our sort of leftover crumbs of devotion to the Lord at the end of a long week, a busy week. I don't say that in any way to condemn anyone. I know that cycle very, very well. Sometimes the whole week's gone before you've had a moment to think. And then at the end, you're too tired to even pray and you throw it. We've all experienced this. We live in a fallen world. But we all need to be responsible for our own walks with the Lord. And we have to be careful. This is what the Lord is warning us here. If you don't catch this, as that love, that first love starts to grow dim, you'll notice things in your life. You may have a desire to keep yourself more busy to, to not deal with it. You may start finding faults in things in your church, things in your sermons. The, the actions of other brothers and sisters may start to bother you more. And then you soon you'll probably claim that you love Jesus and you don't love the church. I believe all of these things are symptoms of losing our first love. And then from that, you probably move to blaming God. How could he put me in this situation? It's his fault really anyway. And on and on it goes. We've all probably ministered to someone in that place or been in that place ourselves. And to these things, I believe he would ask that same haunting question that he asked the Israelites, what wrong did you find in me that you went far from me? And that is a sobering lesson. But the Lord loves his church, even when our lights are shining dimly. So he counsels us now in the next verse how to make sure that we do not go the way of Israel. He says, therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place. The first thing, remember. Think back on the times you had. Remember that excitement, that enthusiasm you had when you first knew the Lord. The exhilaration you felt when you started to see the world with biblical eyes, through his eyes. When you first realised how much it cost him what it meant when Jesus came to die, how much he loved you, when you realised that you were completely lost without you, but there was a saviour who loved you and had come to redeem you. Remember those moments you had when you studied his word and he showed you his truth, when he spoke to you through his word. The joy you had of embracing your brothers and sisters in church in the early days, telling others that you had found the pearl of great price 
and it was the most valuable thing in the world. Remember, it's good to remember. The Christianity is a faith that looks to history and calls us to remember the great deeds that God has done. But we don't just stay there. It's not a history of the past. We look forward to the future. We have to act on that. He therefore says, repent. The remembering of that wonderful first honeymoon period should stir you to conviction if that is not where you are right now. A desire to get back to that place of intimacy with your Lord. We were in the promised land and some of us have left for Egypt. Our eyes turn away. It's, it's almost natural, like, if I could say that. The Lord is saying, stop, turn back, leave those things that are causing you to be drawn away. Repent. Now notice, repentance is crucial. And it is a dirty word in the church today. This is not a vague notion of accepting Jesus into your heart, whatever that really means. The message was always repent and believe. That means you stop, you turn, you acknowledge your actions and your sin for what it is, and you basically throw yourself upon the mercy of Jesus. You go to your Savior, you plead the blood of Jesus on your heart, you cry out to him, you tell him. Tell him that your heart has wandered. Tell him that you've grown cold. Ask again that he would stir up the fires of holy devotion in your soul. We call this personal revival. And if you feel like you've wandered from your first love, this is what you need to do. Because he already knows, but he wants you to come to him. Remember, repent. Do you remember Hebrews 4, 6? Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that you may receive mercy and find grace in a time of need. Many of us here in this room, and we could say more so for our brothers and sisters around the world, will be in a time of need. You will be. If you're not, you'll find yourself in a time of need at some point. That is when you approach the throne of grace. That is when you want to make sure that your heart is not growing cold, that the fire of passion for your Lord is burning. And I believe if you want to fire that passion up, you need to do certain things. And one of those things, I believe, is if you need to get a, re a fresh vision of Jesus Christ. And what a better way to do that than look at the glorified Christ in Revelation chapter 1. Read it, read it again, read it, read it again, meditate on it, pray. Remember, return, repent, and then return. He says, do the deeds you did at first. You don't need to earn back his approval. God does not work like that. You don't need to start at the beginning if you fail. We all fail. His grace is sufficient. He says, just continue walking in the good works he has prepared for you. Remember the grace of God. Remember the love of God that motivates you to serve him. In the epistle to Jude, he says, build yourselves up on the most holy faith praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. And that is really the lesson that he's asking here. A church that has left its first love has not kept itself in the love of God. That is something that we have to do. This, I believe, brethren, is what we need to do. When we are looking around the world, when we're seeing the shaking, when we're seeing everything that is going on that can be distressing, we need to make sure that we keep ourselves in the love of God. Because if we're trying to do ministry, if we're trying to witness, evangelize, and we're not in the love of God, we will come across as a cold, hard, judgmental person. And that does not actually represent Jesus. We need to keep ourselves in the love of God. He says, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. If there is no repentance, the lampstand will be removed. And what he means by this in the context of the letter is that the witness of that local church will be taken away. Let me ask you, is there a church in Ephesus today? 
Now, there probably is actually an underground church in Ephesus today, so I wouldn't say it's removed, could be dispersed elsewhere, but this church is no longer there. He then says, verse 6, Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So almost after that thought-provoking, stirring warning to them, encouraging them to come back to their first love, he gives them one more commendation now. And he says, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We don't know much about the Nicolaitans, to be frank. People speculate. I tend to lean towards the only historical reference we have that comes from Irenaeus. So it's a very early reference, second century again. He says that these people were followers of Nicholas. You remember Nicholas, Acts chapter 6, verse 5. He was one of the original seven deacons in the church that was set up. It's said historically that he departed from the faith. Irenaeus writes this, The Nicolaitans are followers of Nicholas, who was one of the seven first ordained by the apostles. He, he strayed, he led life of unrestrained indulgence. The character of these men is plainly pointed in the Apocalypse of John as teaching it is a matter of indifference to practice adultery and to eat things sacrificed to idols. It seemed to be that he had absorbed a sort of Greek dualistic concept where it doesn't matter what you do with your body as long as you're saved. And you see that quite a lot in the New Testament, so I find that to be quite likely. A sort of Christian liberty, you can do whatever you want as long as you claim to be Christian. That's the idea. And Jesus says he hates that. <laughs> like, we don't often think about Jesus, the God of love, saying he hates things. But he hates that. He hates those who would claim to be uh, representing him, but are in fact representing something quite differently. And that's a strong word again. These, these are strong words we have here. Other people say that Nic the Nicolaitans, the word Nicolaos, two different words, means to conquer the people. And they say that it is speaking of a church hierarchy that was heavy shepherding. It could be a, a mixture of both. Whatever it is, God does not like it. Verse 7, and then we'll finish with this verse. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. And as with all these letters, he ends with an exhortation and a promise. Now notice it says churches, plural. This is a letter to a church in Ephesus, but as we mentioned in the beginning, this is a letter to all churches in Asia Minor and all churches of all time right to today churches plural and he says he who has an ear let him hear and i love that phrase you notice i use i use that phrase often in when i open in prayer it's a phrase that jesus often used in the gospels if you read the gospels he'll always say he who has an ear let him hear and then he goes on and gives a sermon and that's why i believe now in his epistles to the churches jesus is using a familiar phrase it speaks of our responsibility to listen to the word of god at a certain point, you cannot blame anyone for your own wandering or our own disobedience, whatever it may be. And I would say, listening to the word of God, we could say that is the most sublime philosophy in all the world. It is the answer to all mankind's longings, the solution to all the problems of the world, as simple as that may sound. Matthew 17, when he was speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed him, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him that was god the father's message about what jesus doing listen to him if you do you will hear his call to repent you will hear his call to follow and you will hear his call to obey and then you will be what john calls here an overcomer you see to him who overcomes 
an overcomer. Some have tried to argue that this is a special class of Christian, one that is operating near perfection and has never fallen. I believe that is misguided. Uh, this is typical Johannine phraseology. He uses this in most of his writings, the Apostle John, and I believe he explains it for us very clearly elsewhere in the, in the epistle, 1 John 5. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. That's the point. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith, because through our faith we are born again. Who is the one, this is verse 5, 1 John 5, verse 5, who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. If you are truly a believer, have exercised repentance and faith in the one who has overcome the world, because he overcame death, he defeated it, in the one who is going to be coming back as this glorified risen king, in the one... Uh, who will ride on that white horse that we'll see, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. If you have exercised faith in him, asked for your forgiveness, you have overcome the world through him because of what he has done. And because of that, it says, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And this is a reference to the book of Genesis again, the Edenic conditions in the Garden of Eden, where the world was unspoilt by sin, where mankind walked with God, it says, the picture is of one of just unhindered fellowship with your creator. The tree speaks of this restoration. It tells us that once again the world will be like that through this eternal life that Jesus offers. And finally it says in the paradise of God. The paradise, the word literally means garden of delight. Now many people abuse this concept. They focus on a sort of Edenic scene of animals and, and things like that. Regardless, that's secondary and there are other religions... There's no fault. I'm going to plough on through. I've got like two sentences left, okay? So finally, the paradise of God. What is paradise? People say it's a garden. Quite literally, it is where God dwells. So where God dwells is paradise, and that is the future for those who overcome. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's leave it there. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.